Uh, we're going to be in John 4 today, if you want to get your Bibles ready for that. Um, as you turn there, I'm going to, I'm going to pray for us, and then uh, we can jump in. Father, Lord, God, we thank you for your word. Lord, we, we are unworthy sinners, Lord God, and yet you in your kindness and your grace have left us your word. You've given us your spirit. You point us to your grace constantly, Lord. Uh, God, and we just thank you for who you are, God. Lord, you know that I am weak, God, but you are strong and your power is made perfect in weakness. So Father, I pray that you would uh, come, that you would, uh, your power would be at work in and through me today, that your word would be living and active, bearing fruit, and I pray that uh, those that are hearing here, Lord, would uh, hear, receive, take to heart, Lord, and that they would bear much fruit, God, that they would drink the living water. In Christ's name, amen. So today, as I said, we're gonna be uh, in John 4, um, and last week we covered John chapter 3 with Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, as well as John the Baptist's discussion uh, with his disciples about the crowds shifting from following John to now following Jesus. So there at the end of John uh, 3, Jesus' words to his disciples highlight a really important theme that we see throughout the book of John. In 331, he says, He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. So as we've seen and we'll keep seeing throughout the book of John, Jesus is often misunderstood. So when he teaches about heavenly things, uh, his hearers often only understand in an earthly way. Christ is often at pains to, to lift up their eyes, uh, to see past those earthly metaphors that he's using to this transcendent truth of who he really is, his true identity. As Christ told Nicodemus, one must be born again to see the kingdom of God. Time and time again, Christ through his word and his spirit gives the sight. He gives it. He gives it to his hearers so that they see him for who he is, namely the Christ, the Son of God. And that's exactly what we're going to see in our chapter today. So if you have your Bibles, again, we'll be in uh, chapter 4, verse 1. It says this, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he, he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. 
Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. So we'll stop there for a moment. And you know, Jesus in this chapter and so far is speaking about the nature of sin, the gift of life. He's talking about true worship and he's talking about his true identity. So from this chapter, I think we're gonna find this main idea throughout these verses. Jesus is the promised Messiah who gives eternal life that is both spiritual and physical to those who ask in faith. I'll say that one more time. Jesus is the promised Messiah who gives eternal life that is both spiritual and physical to those who ask in faith. And as we work through the text, I think we're gonna see three ideas that'll serve as the points to the sermon tonight. First is that the gift of God is God himself. The gift of God is God himself. Second, Christ came to give the gift of God. And then third, Christ came to bring eternal life. So we'll start there with this third point uh, and work through these as we go. But that first point, the gift of God is God himself. And, and Christ is gonna show us, uh, show this woman first the emptiness of earthly water. So here beginning at chapter four, uh, if you go back to verse one, we see Jesus, or sorry, verse seven, Jesus is sitting by a well, engaging in a conversation with a Samaritan woman. And Jesus begins this conversation, again, with showing her the emptiness of what she's been drinking. In verse seven, Jesus sparks a conversation with this woman by asking her for a drink of water as, she's, as he's sitting by the well. And she's understandably startled uh, by this interaction because uh, she was a Samaritan and he was a Jew, and those kinds of interactions were almost non-existent uh, between these two people groups because of some tensions between the two. But in verse 10, Jesus tells this woman, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. So initially, the Samaritan woman hears Jesus' offer and assumes that he's talking about some variation of regular water, some super water, you know, maybe some Evian or something like that. She looks around at his belongings and notices that he doesn't have a bucket, he doesn't have a rope, and the well is deep, right? 
And so she points that out to him and asks him you know, where he's going to get this gift of water that he's offering to her. So seeing her misunderstanding, Jesus explains further. In verse 13, he says, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. So after sorting through this Jew-Samaritan faux pas, Jesus beckons the woman to ask for living water. But before he explains what it means, the first thing Jesus shows this woman is, is her emptiness. He points to the well and uses the water from the well as a metaphor for the pleasures and the hopes of this world. The pleasures and the hopes here. In effect, he's telling her that this world can't satisfy her deepest longings. And we see later in the passage that she's been looking to relationships to be that well that she would drink from. If you look at verses 16 through 18, they show us that she'd left behind her a trail of failed marriages as each one was replaced with a new attempt. When one didn't work, she looked to the next one and then to the next one, but each time she was left thirsty. Until finally in verse 18, we learn that she decides to live with a man who wasn't her husband. And that just indicates that you know, she was willing to sin at this point in her life. She was willing to settle for a promiscuous, unmarried living arrangement to try to end her search for life-giving water. But each new relationship only served to illustrate Christ's point here. Earthly water is empty water. It's water that doesn't last. It's similar to the image that Solomon gives in Ecclesiastes. Treasures in this life are like a vapor. They're like a chasing after the wind. They all have a shelf life. They don't bring the lasting peace or joy that we hope that they will. Everyone who goes to drink of them will be thirsty again, as Jesus said. For many of us, this truth can be so hard to actually believe, right? You and I might, if asked, be able to say, you know, of course I know that this world doesn't satisfy, obviously. That's like question number one of your Bible trivia, right? And Christ is the only one that's going to be able to satisfy. But do we actually live like that's true? Do we actually live like that? Maybe you're in here tonight and functionally, you're living like people's approval can be that water that you drink from. If, you're, if you were just well-liked and approved of, then you'd really be happy. You know, you'd finally be okay. Maybe you're trying to drink from this well, but it's only bringing a constant anxiety to make sure that you maintain the approval of your peers. Every conversation for you is just another occasion where you might lose that approval. And so you have to make sure that you keep performing to keep it, to keep up the approval. Or maybe like the Samaritan woman, you find yourself constantly searching for a relationship. And you've convinced yourself that once you just find the right person, then you'll be happy. That's it. That's what you're looking for. That's where you're staking your hope. Or maybe you're hoping in your career after college. You're trying to pursue that high-paying job that'll let you buy whatever you want, right? A nice house, a nice car, a nice, you know, fill in the blank. And all the while, you've subtly bought into the idea that, you know, if I just had more money, if I had money, then I'd be okay, then I'd be happy. Or maybe, you know, you wouldn't ident identify with any of those pursuits, but think about your own life. You know, is there something in your life that you know is wrong, but you're willing to keep running back to because you've convinced yourself that you need it to be okay. 
Well, if that's you, then really listen to Jesus's words here in this passage. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. We won't find the kind of life that we're looking for in the things of this world. You know, created things were never designed to satisfy our souls. Like Solomon said, it's chasing after the wind. You're never going to catch it. But that leads us to the rest of Jesus' point in verse 13. He tells this woman that living water eternally satisfies. So look, look back again at verses 13 and 14. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. While Jesus says that earthly water doesn't last, he promises that whoever drinks the living water that he gives will never thirst again. Their thirst will be quenched, and not just for a moment or a day or a week, the water that he's going to give will stay in them unto eternity, continually satisfying them. This is great news. In these verses, Jesus is showing us where true life can be found. The search is over. What can be more precious than this living water that Jesus is talking about? And it gets even better. It's not something that must be earned or made ourselves or performed for to keep. It's a gift that Jesus desires to give us if we would only ask for it from him. Here is water for our souls that will last for eternity. So friends, stop putting your hopes in the empty pursuits of this life and go to Christ and ask. Ask him for the living water that will become in you a spring of water welling up to eternal life. If you're a Christian here tonight, I'd encourage you, seek this living water through his word, through prayer, and in gathering as a church on Sunday. There's a way that we can open our Bibles and pray and participate on Sunday where our hearts are just not in it. You know, we're just kind of going through the motions. And we do these things because we know we're supposed to, but we settle for so much less than what's offered to us. Don't settle for a faith that stays in your head and is just about agreeing with the right doctrines. That's, that's, no, that's no way to live. That's no way to find life. In your meditating on the Bible, praying and participating on Sunday, seek the living water that Jesus will give you through those things as you ask. But we still need to better understand you know, what that living water is. And more, what does it mean to drink this living water that Jesus is offering? So we'll see in the next few verses that drinking the living water means worshiping God because God himself is the living water. So look down at verses 19 through 24. After Christ identifies the sin in this woman's relational life, the conversation makes uh, an abrupt shift to a theological question about where someone should worship, right? So we see the woman say, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So after being shown her sin, this woman seems to be making one last attempt 
to squirm away from Jesus's confrontation, right? He's calling out sin in her life, and so she just very quickly shifts topics to this question about the formal external question of where worship should take place. And as, as you read the conversation, the, you kind of feel the abruptness and you, it really feels like a smokescreen, ultimately. So the woman brings up this dispute between the Samaritans and the Jews about the location of where someone should worship. And unfortunately, we won't have time to really get into the details of, of the dispute itself, but in essence, the Jews and Samaritans at the time disagreed about where someone should worship because the Samaritans rejected everything but the first five books of the Bible as scripture. So this cutting out of scripture caused them to disregard God's instruction later in passages like 2 Samuel 7 uh, about where the temple should be and should be dedicated. So thus this debate between the Jews and the Samaritans about the correct location. The Samaritans were left speculating about this answer uh, and the books that don't yet give the answer. And so they, they really didn't know. And all of that context sets the stage for Jesus' response to this woman's question. So initially in verse 22, Jesus gently tells her that the Samaritans had cut themselves off from God's revelation by rejecting these books. And because of that, they were left in ignorance, is what he says, in their worship of God. The Jews, however, remained in the path of God's revelation. So they did have true knowledge of where and how to worship God. But it's important to see that you know, Christ isn't just trying to win an argument here. He's not just on a mission to prove how right the Jews were and how wrong the Samaritans were in some kind of gotcha moment. It's not what's going on. If you look back one verse at, at verse 21, Jesus indicates that a new era was dawning where the Old Testament, the Old Temple, rather, and the sacrificial system was passing away. He says that the hour is closely at hand where the question of where someone was supposed to worship would no longer be significant. Then in verse 23, Jesus says, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. So Jesus sees this woman's smokescreen, he answers it, and then he moves right back to the issue of her heart. This woman was caught up in this geographical dispute all the while missing the heart of worship. So Jesus brings the conversation right back to discussing true worship. He says that God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. In other words, the Father is seeking those who will worship spiritually and according to God's revealed truth. So what I mean by that is true worship is spiritual in that it's worship from the heart, in the affections. It's an inward worship that's about much more than just doing the right things or saying the right things. It begins with trusting God and it ends with prizing him and enjoying him and treasuring him. But it's about praising him. And that's why we need to worship God in truth. We need to know who God has revealed himself to be. So we're not just worshiping a God that we've made up in our minds. Imagine I were to tell you that I love my dad, right? Most of you don't know my dad, but if I were to tell you things about him, you know, let's say I described him as a short guy with blonde hair, with green eyes. I told you how he loves fixing things around the house. Uh, he hates ice cream. He loves country music passionately. 
and that I loved how outgoing he is, right? Again, none of you guys know my dad, but just based off that first comment that he's a short guy, you could probably assume, okay, that's not probably right. That's not right. That's not my dad at all. Yeah, the picture that I just gave you is anything but my dad. But it's, let's say that's how I understood him to be. Let's say I pictured him in my mind when he was away to be like that. If that's how I pictured my dad, then my love for him would not be in truth. It wouldn't be according to reality. In the same way, we risk worshiping a God of our imaginations if we don't worship God according to who he's revealed himself to be in his word. God is seeking worshipers who love and praise him according to who he really is in truth. And we come to know who he is through his words in scripture. So in this passage, we see that God is seeking those who worship from the heart and spirit and according to the revealed truth of who he is. Now, you may have thought that this section was kind of a rabbit trail, just a complete diversion of what came previous in Jesus's conversation with this woman about the emptiness of earthly water and the living water that truly satisfies. But, but a passage in the Old Testament will help shed light on the fact that Jesus is actually showing this woman that worshiping God is what it means to drink the living water. So if you're, you have your Bibles, we're gonna flip back to the Old Testament very quickly. Go to Jeremiah chapter two. Jeremiah chapter two. We're going to be in verses 12 through 13. So here God is speaking about the idolatry of Israel, and he he calls upon the angels, the heavens, to to come to this courtroom uh, for him to uh, express his complaint against the Israelites. He says this, Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So just like the Israelites here in Jeremiah, this Samaritan woman had led a life chasing after broken cisterns. She was thirsty for love and life but went to the wrong well to drink. Relationship after relationship, she was continually unsatisfied, endlessly moving to the next broken cistern and to the next broken cistern to try to find water, but there wasn't any to be found. But notice what Jeremiah 2 says about what has to happen uh, in our hunt for broken cisterns. When we turn to broken cisterns, we forsake and we abandon God the fountain of living waters. So this woman cycling through uh, cisterns of relationships was actually a much deeper problem than it might first appear. This pattern of sin in this woman's life wasn't just a failed attempt to be satisfied. It's actually idolatry. This woman had turned away from God and tried to replace him in her life. And what does God call himself in these verses? Very, very important here. He calls himself the fountain of living waters. So Jesus isn't using the term living water randomly here. As he does throughout the Gospels during his life, he's picking up the phrase from God's word in Jeremiah 2 and other passages like it and using it in the same way. 
The living water is God himself. So finally, we see that when Jesus offers living water to this woman, he's offering her a relationship with God. To drink this water is to turn from broken cisterns of idols and actually find true satisfaction in worshiping him. Is this the way that you think about Christianity? Or has being a Christian been more of a, a social thing to you? Has been more of a behavior thing to you? Here we get to the heart of knowing what it means to be a Christian. This is what it means. Knowing God is so much more than just coming to church, right? Or trying to be a good person or a nice person or hanging out with the right people. It's about finding eternal happiness. It's about knowing and enjoying God and finding that he will make us alive in a way that we didn't know possible. And that brings us to the next point. As we continue in the passage, we'll see that it's Christ and he alone who came to give the gift of God. So looking back at our passage, we'll see first that Jesus makes a startling revelation about himself, namely that he's the Christ of the Old Testament. So after Jesus gives this woman insight into the heart of true worship, the woman still wrestles with certainty about the words that he's saying. She's not exactly sure if really, she doesn't know what to do with what he's saying. And so she says this, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ, and when he comes, he will tell us all things. Right? She's kind of throwing up her hands here. She's like, ah, I mean, this sounds great, sounds maybe plausible, but really we need the Christ to come to give us certainty about these things. And what does Jesus say? Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. At this point, we see that the Samaritans and the Israelites had a strong hope in the Messiah that was promised in the Old Testament. So even the Samaritans, who, who only believed the first five books of the Bible, would have known of the promises of the Christ found in the Pentateuch in those first five books. They would have known God's promise to Eve to raise up an offspring to crush the head of the serpent. They would have known of God's promise to Abraham to bless all the nations of the world through his seed. They would have known of the promise of a coming king from the tribe of Judah whose rule would never end, found in passages like Jacob's blessings of his sons in Genesis 49. And they most certainly would have known of Moses' words to the Israelites in Deuteronomy 18, of God's promise to raise up a servant like Moses, whom God would raise up in Israel to teach them all that God had commanded. In fact, this last passage of a coming servant like Moses is most likely what the Samaritan woman had in mind when she told Christ, I know that Messiah is coming, and when he comes, he will tell us all things. So the promises about the Messiah were all over the Old Testament, which makes sense why this Messiah became the focus of all the hopes the Samaritans and Jews had. I don't know about you, but when I was in high school, uh, I couldn't wait to go to college. I could not wait. I was ready day one of high school. I lived in Flower Mound, Texas for the larger part of my life, and I was ready for the new life that awaited in college. I spent almost every day in high school daydreaming about what it would be like to, to finally come to campus and start this new life with all this freedom. So each day of my senior year felt like an eternity. I'd sometimes watch the clock at the end of school, just kind of tick, 
the last few minutes uh, until one more day had finally been logged and I could kind of get to the next day, one day closer. But at a certain point, it felt like I would never actually get to graduation day, let alone move-in day uh, at the U of A. So the, the Samaritans and Jews reading this passage would have felt something similar, only amplified to the largest possible degree. All their hopes and expectations as a people were wrapped up in the promise of the Christ, hoping that the Christ would eventually come for them and lead them to freedom. I only had to wait for a year. They waited for centuries. Each generation in between came and went in their entire lives looking to the future in this long expected hope. They were waiting. Proverbs 13, 12 says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. Well, if that's true, then these people would have been deeply heart sick for their Christ as each day passed and waiting. In light of all that, Christ's words to this woman could not have been a more earth-shattering moment in her life. When she tells him she knows that the Christ is coming, again, he responds, I who speak to you am he. I'm the Christ. What a breathtaking moment that would have been. This woman had initially thought she might be speaking with a prophet, but her assessment of this man would have been turned on its head in a single sentence. Here, sitting before her, revealing her sin, offering her living water, was the Christ. The one everyone had been waiting for had finally come, and he chosen to reveal himself to her. The hope of the entire Old Testament was speaking to her. In John chapter 20, verse 31, we read that John wrote this gospel so that those who read would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing would have life in his name. In this passage, we have one of the clearest revelations of who Jesus is. In no uncertain terms, he's just revealed the fact that he is, in fact, the Christ, the Son of God. And the Christ that was promised in the Old Testament is not, the only, is not only the Christ for Israelites and for Samaritans. We see later in the passage in verses 39 through 42 that after the Samaritan woman's discussion about the Christ, many others in a nearby town believe in Christ when they hear his message about himself. Then they say something really important to the woman that, they re that reveals who they understand the Christ to be. In verse 42, they tell her, we know that this is indeed the savior of the world. Jesus is the Christ. And as the Christ, he's not just savior of Israelites and Samaritans, but people from all over the world. As we've mentioned before, these townspeople are picking up on exactly what the Old Testament has promised. In God's promises to Abraham in Genesis 12:3, God promises Abraham that his coming seed would be one in whom all the families of the earth would be blessed. That means that Christ's scope extends beyond the Samaritan town of Sychar, beyond the borders of Israel. It means that he can be your savior too. Jesus is calling you to believe in him. Believe that he is the Christ, and because he is the Christ, he can save you and bring you to God. Believe and you will taste the living water. You see, you and I are exactly like the Samaritan woman. 
All of us have spent our lives turning our backs on God and chasing idols. In the evil of our hearts, we prefer the promise of broken cisterns to the living water of God himself. And because God is holy, he can't ignore that kind of evil rebellion. He won't. That kind of evil and ingratitude can only be met with a fitting punishment. And because we've rejected an eternal gift that lasts forever, our punishment must be eternal. We've provoked God's eternal wrath. And that's what you and I have found in our idolatry. That's what we've earned in our idolatry by chasing after broken cisterns. But there's hope. There is hope. God's grace is much greater than we would expect. And that's why God sent his son, Jesus, Christ, to become a man. Jesus came to earth fully God and fully man. He lived a perfect life to represent us before God as if we lived that life. And even though he was innocent, he willingly gave up his life to become a sacrifice for our sins by dying, crucified on a cross. In his death, he absorbed all the wrath that God had for us as we turned from him to our idolatry. He was buried and then three days later rose from the grave and ascended to heaven where he is now. And Christ now offers you the gift of himself. He offers you forgiveness. And even more, he's offering you this living water. If you'll turn from broken cisterns and trust in him as your savior and Lord. So all of us have a choice tonight. We can turn from our sins and receive the forgiveness and life that Jesus offers, or we can hold on to our idols and remain under the wrath of God. Friends, trust in Christ and find life in his name. Why would you wait? Why would you stay? Why would you go back to the idols that you know don't satisfy you? Come to Christ, who is the living water. And that brings us to the next scene in our text, where we see that Christ doesn't just save sinners. He loves to save sinners. So after his conversation with the woman at the well, Christ's disciples return in verse 27. Knowing that he must be hungry at this point, they urge him to eat some of the food that they just purchased. Jesus responds in a strange way here, right? He says, I have food to eat that you do not know about. When the disciples are clearly confused, he explains in verse 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. So here we're given a window, uh, believe it or not, into the heart of Christ. We see what motivates him and keeps him going. He tells his disciples that his food is to do the will of him who sent him and to accomplish his work. In other words, what brings him pleasure, what satiates him, what keeps him filled is doing the work of the Father. And what is that work? Well, Jesus tells us in verses 35 and 36, it's the work of sowing and reaping the harvest. What's the harvest? It's gathering fruit for eternal life. Or in other words, it's seeking out sinners bringing them to salvation for eternal life. So Christ is saying that he loves to seek out those whom his father had chosen. This is his food. 
Even though he was hungry, there was something much more satisfying to him than going into the town to find bread, to find a meal. He wanted to go to this woman. He wanted to engage with her in her lostness and bring her to salvation. That's why he was willing to miss a meal and go physically hungry, because he delighted in finding his lost sheep and bringing them into the fold. This is the heart of our Savior. Christ doesn't sit back idly and wait for us to get our act together, to earn his favor. He doesn't see you in your sin right now and draw away from you in disgust. Rather, he moves towards sinners. He engages them and beckons them to come to him and find forgiveness, to find life. At great pains to himself, he delights in saving sinners. Friends, what a hopeful passage we're reading. Is this the way that you view Christ? Do you know the kind of grace that he has for you? He loves you. Do you see the favor that he gives despite the fact that you don't deserve him? Let this passage shape your understanding of the heart of Christ. Don't let your awareness of sin be the thing that keeps you from coming to him. If he delighted to seek out sinners like this promiscuous Samaritan, he will delight to do so for you also. He loves to save sinners like you and me. So after these scenes with the Samaritan woman and and Jesus' disciples, John, the author of this book, includes a story of an event that took place between Jesus and a royal official, starting in verse 46. This will be a short uh, little section here that we'll cover. As the event unfolds, we see that the story actually uh, serves to further illustrate what came before. Here we'll see that the life that Christ brings is not just spiritual, but also physical. Unfortunately, we're not gonna have time to cover every detail, uh, but I wanna point out a few details in this exchange. So in this passage, we see Jesus return to Cana in Galilee, where he turned water into wine at the wedding. But this time, we don't see a celebration. We see a tragedy unfolding. A royal official approaches Jesus and pleads with him to come with him and to heal his son who was sick to the point of death. Rather than follow this man, Jesus simply says to him in verse 50, go, your son will live. At this word, the official leaves to return to his son, believing in Christ's words. And on his way home, his servants meet him on the road and inform him that his son has recovered at the same time the day before that Jesus spoke the words that he would live. And we're told that this man believed in Christ as a result. So it's no coincidence that this story comes right after the exchange uh, with the Samaritan woman about the living water. There Jesus explains that the living water he brings will lead to eternal life. However, in that passage, the emphasis is strongly on the spiritual nature of eternal life. Here we see that eternal life uh, that Christ brings is not just spiritual, but it's physical. Our bodies are involved in this. Because of the curse of sin, our bodies are subject to death and sickness and to decay. But in this scene, we see Christ didn't just come to take us up into the sky to live as spirits in the clouds. He came to reverse the effects of the curse and make all things new. 
So here in this small scene of a boy recovering from sickness, recovering from the effects of the fall, we see a foreshadowing of what Christ will do full scale soon. Ultimately, the story points us forward to the new heaven and the new earth that Christ is bringing. When that day comes, there will be no more sickness and no more pain. There will be no more death. There we'll live forever with new bodies and we'll walk with God and drink his living water forever. Friends, this is the communion that we were made for. And that future awaits all who trust in Christ. So the question remains, have you trusted Christ for living water? Will you trust him tonight?